When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Our guest on the program today is Dennis Porter, CEO and co-founder of the Satoshi Action Fund, which is a 501c4 nonprofit educational organization dedicated to informing policymakers and regulators about Bitcoin mining's benefits and how it can be used as a tool to support other public policy goals. He is a Bitcoin advocate and political strategist who is highly dedicated to protecting and defending Bitcoiners and the Bitcoin industry in the United States. He is at the core of driving grassroots Bitcoiner engagement across the U.S., especially most recently in states like Arkansas, Mississippi, and elsewhere. And if you want to learn about non-fraudulent cryptocurrency, why it should remain decentralized, if it really is terrible for their environment, you're curious about CBDCs, Dennis is going to break down all of these topics on the program today. A little different from our usual conservation discussion and interview, but cryptocurrency, especially when factoring in the emission stuff, very important to conservation. I'll let Dennis take it away from here, but a very fascinating conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Have a listen and let me know what you think. Dennis, thank you so much for joining my podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you uh, letting me chat about all the things that I'm interested in today. Why don't you introduce yourself, talk about the Shatoshi Action Fund, and what led you to become very interested in cryptocurrency? specifically Bitcoin. Uh, of course. Uh, thank you, Gabrielle. I'm, um, you know, my name is Dennis Porter. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Satoshi Action Fund and also the president and founder of Satoshi Action Education. I, I decided to you know, get involved and launch these, these two organizations after spending uh, quite a bit of time looking at areas where there was a need for political advocacy and education and research around Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Um, you know, I have a background in politics, and so I, I've seen you know what can happen when industries, particularly new industries that are front and center in the media, decide to ignore the political spectrum and tr- decide to disengage and stay apart from it. For a long time, many many Bitcoiners and folks in the space thought or believed that you know it's important to kind of stay away from government and that we shouldn't be involved and that you know kind of Bitcoin is separate from government in some ways. Uh, which, you know, in some ways might be true, just very much like how the Internet is on its own, you know, as a protocol is is separate from the government. But um, the way that we use the the Internet, the way that we use Bitcoin will be decided, I think, very much so by the way that we engage in the political spectrum uh, and will also be very impactful for us as individuals. You know, we, you know, the Internet and, and Bitcoin are on the Internet, they're in the cloud, they're outside of government. But we as individuals definitely are not outside of government. And so I think it's very important that if we want to see a very bright future for Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining in the United States, 
that we need to become very active politically to ensure that our policymakers and our regulators and leaders of this nation understand the value of the technology and what it can bring. I mean, Bitcoin itself has the ability to act as like a backstop for those that are wishing to prevent uh, any sort of exposure to the mass money printing that's going on in this country. Uh, Bitcoin can also operate as a great savings account and can be used as a form of currency that can go across borders um, and, and save incredible amounts of time and money for those that are sending money to folks abroad. Um, and, and that's just Bitcoin the asset, which is supported by the data centers, uh, Bitcoin mining data centers in particular, which have very unique features. Uh, because Bitcoin mining as a technology uh, and, and as a, a form of data center is so unique, it has the ability to perform very specific advantages for our grid infrastructure, for our energy infrastructure, and has the potential to be very positive uh, for the environment as well, which I'm sure we can get into here in a little bit. But we've had a, we've had a lot of success educating uh, policymakers and regulators on the potential benefits of this technology for the environment, for the grid, and for our economy. What we did is we first educated those folks, and then we turned around and we crafted public policy internal to Satoshi Action Fund, and we shared it with those legislators and policymakers who have the, then gone on to introduce our policy. We've had it introduced in uh, nine different bills in seven different states, five of which are currently active, two of which have passed our policy through the House and Senate, um, both in Arkansas and Montana. We're looking to hopefully make some good progress in Missouri and Texas and New Hampshire soon as well. Uh, and well, we're just kind of continuing, looking to continue that success with our new entity, which is Satoshi Action Education. We've, we found that there was a really big gap in the world for research around Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, particularly peer-reviewed research. Uh, and the, the, the peer review process is difficult to understand and it's difficult to navigate, but we were lucky to bring on uh, Dr. Murray Rudd, who has been published nearly 70 times. He's been cited over 5,000 times, and he's been helping guide us through the process of being able to get good academic research into the peer-reviewed journals. Because one of the biggest problems that we face today as an industry is, is when you try to submit any sort of Bitcoin or Bitcoin mining research to these journals, oftentimes they're going out for review to get peer-reviewed, correct, right? Like, and, and once that happens, this research is getting put in front of a generally pessimistic um, uh, academic world. And in the, in the case of Bitcoin mining, the reviewers are oftentimes like Alex DeVries or the Digiconomist folks or the uh, Morad L folks who have a very negative outlook on Bitcoin mining. So we've had a, we, we as an industry have had a hard time breaking through that. But now because of Dr. Murray Rudd, who is also an editor at an academic journal, I think we have a real opportunity to be able to break through that uh, glass ceiling of peer-reviewed uh, you know, scholarly works for Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining to be able to really show the world, but particularly our policymakers and regulators, that the positive things that we're saying about Bitcoin mining are not just stories that we tell within the Bitcoin space, but they are in fact uh, real, real tangible benefits that we can experience here in the United States and globally. I often see critics of Bitcoin assert that the object in question itself, including by extension, a proof of work framework has high emissions, it's bad for the environment, and we see regulators even, this administration in particular, suggesting moving away from a proof-of-work framework to a proof-of-scope framework instead um, for Ethereum and other alternatives. Do you have questions about that? What are your criticisms of that 
forceful transition away from that? And does Bitcoin have as bad of an environmental pr- footprint as its critics allege or not so much? That's a very great question and probably one of the most important topics for Bitcoin mining today is, you know, is Bitcoin mining good or bad for the environment? And should Bitcoin mining or Bitcoin broadly move away from uh, proof of work to uh, what we call proof of stake? And I I don't I I think it's important for people to realize that um, the move from proof of work to proof of stake is something, first of all, that would need to be implemented by the users. The, the big difference between Bitcoin and uh, protocols like Ethereum is that their Ethereum is very top down. So when they make a decision to do something, it can be forced on all the users on that network. Somewhat kind of like the system that we have today, right? Like if our policymakers decide to uh, change a law or to uh, increase a tax, like there's nothing we can do to stop that. We all must abide by those those new laws, those new those new regulations. Uh, Bitcoin is very different. It has a completely different governance model. It is a very much a bottom-up approach, and the users get to decide where they go. So if someone in the development world in Bitcoin decides to make a difference or a change to the protocol, to the code, the user gets to decide if they want to adapt that code when they decide to update or not update the software on their node. Uh, the nodes are you know, what control the network, and the users that control those individual nodes get to decide which direction they go. So, so that's one thing important to keep in mind. And I think it's really uh, a, a very valuable governance structure because each person gets to decide for themselves if the way forward is the right path for Bitcoin. And thus far, the users have done a very good job of uh, choosing what's in the, the best interests of them as an individual. Um, it's very much an individual-driven uh, entity or protocol. Um, and so if we are going to be moving from proof of work to proof of stake, you'll have to convince all these individuals to change their software and and be able to upgrade the code. And users have done that many times before. Whenever there's a uh, you know some sort of major problem with the code that needs to be upgraded, uh, users have followed that upgrade. Um, we have various upgrades in the past which have been proposed, which are bad for Bitcoin, and people have rejected those sorts of upgrades. And in my opinion, uh, I personally believe, as a node runner and as a user of of Bitcoin, that moving from proof of work to proof of stake would be a cataclysmic uh, uh, a downgrade on the network itself. And let's keep the energy conversation separate because that's an important one. But but for now. Uh, moving from proof of work to proof of stake would downgrade the security and centralize the network itself. Um, proof of work is way, way, way be- much better for the uh, decentralized security of the network to make sure that it cannot be taken over and controlled by central entities, which is critical because if you're talking about money, which if Bitcoin achieves what it wants to achieve, which is to become the base layer money um, of the world, which is you know what the designer of Bitcoin created it for, then you're going to want a money that I don't think any central entity can control. That's that's the problem we face with money today, right? We have money that is centrally controlled. Uh, central banks can print billions, if not trillions, of dollars, and there's really nothing that you or I can do to stop that. Um, and anytime that we've really put money in the hands of people or central entities, they have corrupted and debased that money to the point at which it has been very harmful or had very negative impacts on society. We can look back through history over and over and over again. Every single time that there has been way too much control or power around money, 
and has resulted in very poor outcomes, uh, oftentimes because we decide to print that money in order to escape the pain or, or to grow our, you know, our empire, so to speak. Uh, we can look back at Rome uh, when Rome decided to debase the silver denarii. Um, more than 95%, eventually what happened was the soldiers that were guarding the very large militarized border for Rome, they weren't. They decided they weren't going to fight anymore for this currency that had been debased to basically nothing. They were not going to risk their lives for a currency which had no value. Uh, and so part and part was that was a big reason why the Roman Empire collapsed. I'm not the only reason, but a very big part of the reason why that empire collapsed was the debasement of their money. Uh, we can also look at the transatlantic slave trade uh, that occurred in the 17 and 1800s, which was accelerated very, very much so by the debasement of money. At the time, the African nations were using um, uh, glass agri beads, which have also been dubbed slave beads, uh, because what happened was the Europeans came south and they noticed that the African nations, which at the time were very rich in resources. Um, and had been more were more advanced at the time than they, some would say even to today, um, comparatively. But they were using this glass as a form of currency. Well, the, the European nations came south, and they had advanced glass making abilities at the time. So they debased that currency um, quite quite extensively. In fact, they would bring boats of glass agri beads down. And some folks thought they were gaining so much wealth, they would sell themselves into slavery for the wealth that they thought they would acquire, which is probably arguably one of the worst ways or worst impacts of currency debasement that we've seen uh, in human history. So it accelerated the transatlantic slave trade, uh, accelerated the destruction of the Roman Empire, and was also a key factor in the advent of Nazi Germany when the Weimar Republic decided to print their money into infinity and absolutely destroy their hyperinflation, the currency that they were using, uh, which led to the rise of Nazi Germany, which led to um, Hitler calling the Jews out and saying that they were to blame, which led to uh, obviously mass murder on, on a scale that we can hardly comprehend. Uh, so again, humans are not to be trusted with money. They do very bad things with it, particularly they tend to debase it um, in a way which can really have very just incredibly negative consequences and outcomes for society. So Bitcoin, what it does is it takes away that ability for anyone to be able to centrally control the money. And if we were to move from proof of work to proof of stake, you're putting that you're putting that core, most important component of Bitcoin at risk. And I just don't think that it's, it's worth it. Um, that is just the one side of the conversation. That is the, did we do it if, um, or, can, or can we do it? And what are the, the outcomes on the protocol from a monetary perspective, from a security perspective? But even, even if that was something that we could do and security could be maintained, the network could be maintained, I would still argue that we should not. Uh, and that is where the energy component comes into the conversation. Oftentimes in the Bitcoin space, we hear a lot of people talk about Bitcoin mining and say that it's very bad for the planet. It's using all, all sorts of energy. It's destroying our grid. It's causing emissions. But I would argue that Bitcoin mining is one of the most important tools that we have devised in modern history to be able to advance our energy infrastructure and also simultaneously combat specific environmental problems. Um, and I'll start with that first one there. So Bitcoin mining as a technology is very unique because its load profile is unlike any we've ever experienced before. 
When you decide to build a solar or wind plant and a wind farm, you're also inherently introducing certain sorts of outcomes into the energy infrastructure that were not there prior. Wind and solar are an intermittent energy asset. So they only create energy when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. And that's a very big problem for energy infrastructure because the energy infrastructure of the past is an on-demand energy asset. So you can you need more power, you just put more gas in, you put more coal in, you even, you know, in the case of nuclear, you know, you kind of keep the nuclear power plant running. And that is a really important component to making sure our grids stay balanced. Unfortunately, with wind and solar assets, that's not that's not the same. They're very intermittent, as I mentioned. They only create wind uh, energy when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. So what's happening is grid operators are having to come up with very unique ways in order to compensate for this sort of inability for wind and solar to be on all the time. And with Bitcoin mining, it comes in as this very unique partner to be able to participate in the grid. There's a program called uh, Demand Response, which essentially says, hey, if you if you're powered on right now, but let's say like a storm comes through or let's say there's some sort of um, let's say there's some sort of weakness in the grid and we need to be able to find more power instead of going and building a gas speaker plant or going and deciding to uh, you know, import power from other parts of the, the nation. You ask customers, hey, would you be willing to wind down instead to be able to make sure that we can compensate for this moment? Um, that's a program that's being developed by FERC um, and, and uh, is, is being pushed all over the country through various RTOs and ISOs. And, and Bitcoin mining, because of its unique profile, where it is on, wants to be on all the time, but can be shut off at any time, is very good at participating in that program, which is very good um, for renewables. But I'll, 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 let me pause there. Obviously, as you can tell, I think your audience can tell, uh, a very, very, very uh, favorable towards Bitcoin mining. I think it's a very powerful technology. I think Bitcoin is a great uh, form of money. Um, but want to pause there and, and try to give give a little bit of moment for back and forth. Sorry for me for just going on and on. No, it's perfectly fine. Actually, on that same tangent, I want to ask you about the Treasury Department's proposal. I think it's in line with the some odd trillion dollar Biden budget that is being deliberated right now. I know you probably have been very vocal about this, but the proposal to impose a 30% excise tax on powering crypto mining facilities, why would that be a bad policy? And could you explain what the implications from that would be if that agency were to proceed with this? Yeah, absolutely. It's a horrible policy. Uh, I'm generally against any sort of targeted policy um, in, in general. I think that uh, policy should be tech neutral. So going after going after Bitcoin miners in this way is just is just bad policy on its face. Uh, also, a thirty percent tax would arguably kill the Bitcoin mining industry overnight in the United States. And I think that if we did that, that we would miss out on all the jobs, all of the uh, environmental cleanup, grid benefits, uh, all of the investment, and all of the potential for Bitcoin mining to enhance green and carbon-free energy projects. So it's 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 probably as bad as it could get. And I've told Bitcoin miners, I, and I've said too, it was like, listen, and this is not a situation where we negotiate. Oftentimes, policymakers will throw out some crazy number, you know, get get people scared, get them concerned. And then they will negotiate down to the number that's acceptable. I, I've told Bitcoin miners, I, I think that zero is the only acceptable number, um, partly because it's bad policy, partly because they'll spend the next 10 years trying to raise that whatever number they agree on, whether it be 1%, 5% to a 10%. 
15%. But it also opens this Pandora's box of being able to regulate the end use of electricity. I think it's a very dangerous world that we're headed to where when government can decide what you can use power for. Because the moment that those in power can decide whether or not you can have your lights on or not during a specific time of the day, they will also start using it for political purposes. So when Democrats are in power, they will be using that ability to control when and where you use electrons. Um, who, let's say they'll decide, oh, well, you're not allowed to have a gun store that's, that's that has power at that time of day. Um, who, who knows how far it could go in the political spectrum? But, but in my opinion, both sides will do it. Just like how both sides have printed you know, trillions of dollars, they've both contributed to that. That abuse of that power, I believe both sides will will have to almost in order to keep up, abuse the use of electricity and regulate the end use of electricity and use that as a political football. But I think that we should not only be pushing back in, it, in the Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining space, I think broadly, anybody who cares about freedom, liberty, and making sure that the federal government is contained should be absolutely opposed to any sort of uh, attempt to target a, a specific end use of electricity. And, 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 and to put on top of that, it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, the tobacco industry uses, I think like double the amount of power that the Bitcoin mining network uses, and they emit uh, 250% more emissions than the Bitcoin network. And, and, and also um, 350,000 people are dying every year from cancer linked to tobacco usage. But you don't see policymakers running around um, trying to regulate the end use of electricity for the tobacco industry. Um, so I, I just think it's a really odd attempt to attack the Bitcoin mining industry. I think that they are using the popularity of the press combined with Bitcoin to try to push this policy forward, something that they would probably push forward regardless of the industry. But they happen to be targeting an industry that, again, provides energy benefits, environmental benefits, and economic benefits. So it's probably, uh, if they were going to target someone, they, they should try to target something that actually has a, a negative impact on, on society, not an industry which is bringing so many positive benefits. In line with cryptocurrency, I know we've talked about this in private conversation, but I want to get your thoughts on the potential development of a U.S. central banking digital or U.S. central bank digital currency or CBDC. I think some people surmise that FedCoin, which is currently being developed, or a potential FedCoin um, could potentially be seen in the Federal Reserve with one of the digital currencies they're experimenting with. But the administration has tried to pour water on that notion, but a lot of people naturally are skeptical. I just saw just recently that one of the Federal Reserve governors, I believe it's um, Ms. Bowman, had I'd say place doubts on the benefits of a CBDC. So maybe there is increasing skepticism about creating one. But what is a CBDC? How does cryptocurrency fit into that framework? And what threats would a potential CBDC pose? Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a great area to cover, especially because you know CBDCs are very much the opposite of Bitcoin. Um, and there has been some confusion around there because people hear, you know, central bank digital currency and then they hear digital currency and they're like, well, those things sound pretty similar. They are vastly different. They are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, with a CBDC, you would be inviting a type of currency that would allow central banks or the federal government to be able to programmatically control when, where, and how you spend your money. Very much like uh, food stamps today where you can only, you know, you get a, a certain amount of food stamps per month. You can only spend them on certain types of food. 
That's what would happen with CBDCs. You'd be able to control how, when, and where folks spend their hard-earned money. So let's say, you know, again, this is this is getting into that giving the government, giving the federal federal government another political football. We they would be able to use that political football to determine if a whether or not someone could buy a weapon to defend themselves. Or let's say it's on the other other end of the spectrum. They would be using that to decide whether someone could donate to a Democrat for political contributions. So it, this thing could really swing both ways. And I just think it's very important that we understand the danger of introducing this sort, this type of money. But it sits, again, on the opposite spectrum from, from Bitcoin. Bitcoin is permissionless, and it can be used and accessed by, by anyone who needs financial services, which in fact is typically very beneficial for folks who have been left out of the financial system. We have millions of people in America today who don't have a bank account, um, either because they, they can't afford to have one, or for the case of when you're, if you're homeless or you don't have a, your own address, you can't get a bank account. Well, Bitcoin is very different. It, it does not require you to have a physical address. The folks that are, don't have, that, that don't have a home, maybe you have, um, people that have had a bad history, bad banking history, but now want to try again. They want a second chance. Bitcoin offers that second opportunity to people that have been disenfranchised and left out. And again, I cannot reiterate enough because this is actually a real problem that we face. Bitcoin and CBDCs are the opposite end of the spectrum. CBDC would be used to control you on a lever on a level which you've never been controlled before. There, there's a reason why China was the first country on the planet to adopt this technology and implement this technology, and they have done so already there with the digital one. And what they've been doing is they're not just telling you, you know, oh, you can't, you can't buy this thing, you can't buy that thing. They're also creating incentives in that system, very much like the social credit score that they've implemented as well, to force you to do and perform certain behaviors. And and the, the problem once you have an unlimited money printer combined with an, uh, a type of money which has unlimited amounts of programmatic control is you can really convince human beings to do certain things, just very much like how human beings were willing to sell themselves into uh, slavery for the glass agri-bead. Like this, again, when you manipulate money to this level, you can make people do things that they never thought they would do before. So it is not only an absolute invasion of your privacy, because they will be able to track every single transaction down to the very penny. It is a way to manipulate human behavior, which we've not experienced on this planet before. So anybody that even has even a little bit of care about the ability for individual thought and freedom should be absolutely opposed to CBDCs and should be very much trying to support Bitcoin in any way possible. I think more and more of the public, even if they don't dabble in Bitcoin, I don't dabble in it myself, but I understand principally uh, the problem with centralized kind of frameworks. I support decentralization. I think most people are like me who listen to the program and speaking of centralization, I saw that they're trying to rehabilitate FTX. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, should that just, you know, it failed? Should it just be gone and done with? Can uh, a centralized exchange like that come back? Um, do you not want to see it come back? What are your thoughts on that if you've um, researched into it? I personally would like to never see the word 